Every four years, the world turns its attention to a series of competitive events on a global scale called the Olympic Games. We're less than 100 days right now, about 95 days from the next set of Olympic Games that will be held in London, England in just a few months. At the Olympic Games every year, or every, every four years when they come around, there are always some amazing stories. One of my favorite parts of the Olympic Games are the stories of the athletes. And because it's not the, the typical athletes that we see on Sports Center every night or read about in Sports Illustrated every week, a lot of these are just hometown heroes that have given their lives to one particular passion. And the Olympic Games is their moment in the sun to, at the pinnacle of their specific talent, compete against the best in the world. In 2004, it was a particularly historic Olympic Games because those Olympics were held in the birthplace of the Olympics, Athens, Greece. And 2004, like all the Olympics, gave us a lot of unique and, and, and interesting stories. But one story in particular came out of the 2004 Olympic Games that, that I've never forgotten. And it's the story of a man named Matt Emmons. I don't know if you heard the story of Matt Emmons or not from the 2004 Olympic Games, but, but Matt Emmons' story is one that stuck out in my mind. Matt Emmons represented the United States of America in the three-position, 50-meter rifle event. And Matt Emmons had so dominated the competition that by the time it came for him to take his last shot, all he had to do to win the gold medal was just hit the target anywhere. I mean, he didn't have to even hit a bullseye. He didn't, he didn't have to get even close. Just anywhere on the target, and Matt Emmons walks away with a gold medal. One sports writer said it this way, Rick Riley. He said, it'd be like telling Picasso all he has to do is hit the canvas. Matt Emmons aimed, fired his gun, and stepped back to look at the monitor to see his score, to revel in that moment of having won the gold medal at the Olympic Games, only to look up at the scoreboard and see a zero for his shot. He looked at the judge and said, there must be some kind of glitch. Something must be wrong. And as they zoomed the camera in, there was no bullet hole in the target that was dedicated to Matt Emmons, but there were two bullet holes in the target next to his. In that moment, Matt Emmons had accidentally aimed at the wrong target. And he not only lost the gold medal, he lost every medal contention possibility and finished in fourth place in those Olympic Games. Now, Matt, if you are here in our service this morning, I'm sorry for making you relive that tragic moment in your life. But there's a great lesson for all of us in the story of Matt Emmons. And it is, we better be sure that we are aiming at the right target. I want to ask you two questions as I begin this morning. Here's the first one. Do you desire to faithfully follow Jesus? 
If you're here this morning and you would say, Pastor, it's my desire to faithfully follow Jesus, would you just raise your hand up and just hold it up? Keep it up for just a minute. I desire to faithfully follow Jesus. Don't put it down yet. Just hold it up. All right. That's what I thought. You can put them down. Almost every hand. That's kind of what we should expect, right? I mean, we're not at a casino or a bar. We are at church. So, I mean, the assumption is that most people who are here this morning have a desire to faithfully follow Jesus. Now, by raising your hand, let me tell you what you just said. Here is the target of my life. I desire to faithfully follow Jesus. Now, if that's the target, then we better be able to answer the second question I want to ask you this morning. And that is, what does a faithful follower of Jesus look like? I mean, we all just gave the testimony, the target of my life, what I'm aiming at, what I want to hit with my life is to faithfully follow Jesus. Then it's pretty important that we know what that target is. When you came in, you were given one of these. It's a listening guide. I'm going to ask you to grab it and take it out. We're going to give you one of these every weekend for the next seven weekends as we walk through this series together that that I believe to be one of the most important series that we do in the life of our church. This is just a a place for you to take notes, to follow along. We've got some of the scripture we're going to use this morning on here, some places for you to write some notes and fill in some blanks. And at the very top here, I begin with those two questions. And what I want to do this morning is give you a little bit of a pop quiz, all right? Now, the good news is you don't have to turn it in, all right? And we're not going to grade it. But I want you to take about 30 seconds and try to answer Those two questions. The first one, you've raised your hand. You said, yes, that one's easy. But the second one, I want you to take about 30 seconds and begin to define or describe what a faithful follower of Jesus looks like. And I'm not going to give you but about 30 seconds because I got too much to say this morning. All right. So you got 30 seconds. Go. We should have the Jeopardy music or something playing right now, right? All right, that's all the time I'm going to give you. I know you hadn't finished, but I hope you've begun to think down that track. Because in in, in church culture in America, and I pick on us because I know us best. It's probably true outside of America, but I know specifically inside the context of our own country. We tend to answer that question in one of two ways. The first and most popular way we answer that question is by what a person does. And if we answer the question by by the the, the theory of what a person does, then, then the way we answer that question is with a list of things that you're supposed to do to be a good Christian. And then, obviously, that list of things you're not supposed to do, right, to be a good Christian. And if we're answering the question that way, then then we measure our faithfulness with this question. Am I doing all the right things? 
What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, you go to church every week, you read your Bible every day, you pray every day, you give uh, some of your income, 10% to the Lord's work, you try to share the gospel with other people, you try to be a good husband and father or wife or mother, you try to be a good employer or employee, and then, oh yeah, there's this whole list of things you're not supposed to do, and depending on where you grow up in America, guess what I found out? The list of things you're not supposed to do changes. I grew up in Alabama. Y'all do some stuff out here that they said we weren't supposed to do back in Alabama. It's a moving target. But in the typical church culture, what we do is we define faithfully following Jesus by simply a few external traits or characteristics, and we say, oh, that person, man, they faithfully follow Jesus. Well, how do you know? Well, they're here every time the doors are open. Oh, that person's a faithful follower of Jesus. How do you know? They serve in 32 different ministries inside the church and they've signed up for five more. That person's a faithful follower of Jesus. How do you know? They're always willing to go visit somebody and share the gospel. They've got to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Oh, that person's a follower of Jesus. How do you know? Man, they don't do this and they don't do this. And man, they don't even do this. And that's kind of on the middle there. They, They don't even do that. There's another way we define it. In our culture, in America, not only do we sometimes and most of the time define it by what a person does, but sometimes we define it by what a person knows. If you grew up in a culture that defines faithfully following Jesus by what a person knows, then here's the way we define it. You you go to a series of classes, and upon completion of those classes... You're able to answer all the questions and you have all the right information and you can recite the creeds and you can recite the dogmas and you can say everything just like it's supposed to be said. And when you've reached the point where you can now understand and explain and articulate all the things that everybody else in the group can explain and articulate, oh, you're a faithful follower of Jesus. If we measure faithfulness this way, we we do it by asking the the, the question, can they answer all the right questions? Do they have all the right information? Do they say it just like we say it? You know the problem with this, right? Both of these fall grossly short of the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And Paul warned us. Paul warned us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter, I think it's chapter 11, Paul warns us that we be careful not to be led astray. And here's what he said, don't be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. You see, the natural tendency of our flesh is towards a system, towards performance, towards trying to dot the I's and cross the T's. And what we've done in our culture is we've so complicated, like the Pharisees of old, we've added all these rules and all this religion and all of these do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and dogmas and creeds and all the statements that we're supposed to be able to say and articulate. We've added all of this on top of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. As a pastoral team, we understand 
that our primary responsibility as your pastors in serving you, our primary role in serving you is to lead you to faithfully follow Jesus. That's the essence of what disciple-making is all about, to lead people. That's why at Hope our mission is to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And so when we began our church, about our second or third year as a pastoral team, we, we went on a study journey together for about a year. Because when you start a church, there are some advantages and some disadvantages. Now, one of the disadvantages to starting a church is you can't blame the former pastor for all the problems, right? If it's broke, you broke it. But one of the advantages is there's no tradition, there's no culture, there's no this is the way we've always done it before. You just get to take the New Testament, the Word of God, the Bible, open it up, Say, Lord, what's it supposed to look like? And so we took an entire year and we examined the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Just as pastors for a year, we just studied the life of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels in specific. And after a year of study, we came away with a a discovery. The life of Jesus in the Gospels revolved around three relationships. And I want to illustrate it by you imagining with me this morning that I have three file folders or file drawers right here on the stage, all right? Three file drawers. Now, I'm not saying do this literally, but you could take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and a pair of scissors, and you could cut every story out in the Gospels, and you can drop every story into one of three file drawers. Let me give them to you. Number one. Jesus and his relationship to the Father. As you read the Gospels, Jesus lived his life out of the overflow of intimacy with the Father. Everything that he did, he did out of the overflow of intimacy with God. Now, I understand Jesus was 100% God. But he was also 100% man. And in his humanity, he chose to live in dependence on the Father. And he said it this way in John. He said, when you hear my words, he said, it's not my words, it's the Father's words in me. He said, when you see my works, it's not my works, it's the Father's works in me. He said, I did not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. He lived in complete and total dependence on his relationship with the Father. And as you read the Gospels, you see it. He would slip away into the wilderness to spend time with the Father. He would go up into the garden to spend time with the Father. Over and over again, we see stories of Jesus and his relationship to the Father. But there was a second relationship. Jesus and his relationship to his disciples. Jesus had this relationship with these followers, those that had believed in the gospel. A relationship of discipling and pouring into them and encouraging them and teaching them and fellowshipping with them. Stories like The story when Jesus is sleeping in the boat and the disciples are all upset because the storm comes and the boat's being tossed to and fro and they think life as they know it is coming to an end and they run to Jesus and wake him up and Jesus speaks to the wind and he calms the storm and he teaches them about faith and what it is to trust God in the midst of your circumstances. 
Stories like the feeding of the 5,000, where if you read that story very, very specifically, Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. His disciples did. He took the bread and the fish and he put it in their hands and he taught them this great truth about dependence on God and God's provision and how they could be a part of God's activity. He was teaching and pouring into his disciples. But then there was a third relationship in Jesus' life. Jesus and his relationship to the unbelieving world. People that didn't know God at all. Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Very religious, but he didn't know God. John chapter 3, that great verse, John 3, 16, is a verse that we learn in the context of Jesus having a relationship with a man that doesn't know God at all. Then in John chapter 4, we get a whole different story. Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, not religious at all. Matter of fact, Jesus confronted her because she'd had five husbands and was now living with a sixth man that wasn't even her husband. Totally different scenario than Nicodemus. But Jesus building a relationship to share Christ. We read stories of Jesus and Zacchaeus, the wicked tax collector that was stealing money from people. Jesus and Matthew, the tax collector that had the party where all his friends came and heard the gospel. Over and over again, Jesus had relationships with people that didn't know God at all. So, you, you do it sometime. Don't, don't literally do it with scissors, but just think through it. Every story in the gospel falls into one of those three files. Jesus and his relationship to the Father. Jesus and his relationship with his disciples. Jesus and his relationship with people that didn't know God at all. Now, if that's the life of Jesus Christ, If you and I have given our lives to Jesus, where does Jesus now live? He lives in us, right? And the Christian life is not you and I trying to do some good things and not do some bad things. And listen, the Christian life is not even you and I simply trying to mimic the life of Jesus. No, the Christian life is literally the life of Jesus Christ being fleshed out in my life. Now, if when he was on the earth, this is what his life looks like, what do you think it's going to look like now? being lived out through us. It's going to look the same. Major Ian Thomas said it this way. The Christian life is nothing less than the life which he lived then, lived now by him in you. So let me give you the foundation statement for this whole series that we're going to unpack together for the next six weekends. The life of a Jesus follower is all about relationships. I want you to read that out loud off the screen with me. You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. The life of a Jesus follower is all about relationships. Here's what we mean by that. These three relationships establish a paradigm that you and I should be able to lay down over our lives and examine to see if we're faithfully following Jesus. These three relationships overlap to define the target of what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. So for the next six weekends... We're going to take two weekends on each relationship and we're going to unpack it. 
and look at that as a church family to examine our hearts and our lives. And we're going to begin this morning. I'm going to just quickly introduce the three relationships to you, and we're going to be done. So here's the first one. Following Jesus is about a relationship with God. Following Jesus is about a relationship with God. Now I want you to look this way. The blank there is really easy. It's just God. All right, that's short. Write it down. Look this way. Listen, if you miss this one, you miss it all. If you miss this, you miss everything. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. It doesn't matter how many times you get baptized. It doesn't matter how many days you read your... If you miss this, you miss it all. Everything else centers in and is built upon this basic premise that following Jesus is about a relationship with God. I want to show it to you in the Bible. John chapter 17 and verse 3. I want to put it up on the screen. John chapter 17 and verse 3. And I want you to read it out loud with me. You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. This is eternal life. Stop right there. That ought to perk our ears up. Jesus is about to give us a definition here. And he's not just defining some little trivial thing. He's about to define for us the big deal, right? I mean, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole enchilada. That, that's, that's the big deal. And Jesus is about to unpack for us in one simple statement all that eternal life encompasses. Let's read it. Here we go. One, two, three. This is eternal life that they may know. Stop right there. The word know here is a very important word in the Greek language because it doesn't simply mean to know about something. There are people that you and I know about, political figures, sports heroes, people from history. We know about them, but we may or may not know them personally. This word know here is a word that implies direct personal fellowship. It's a relationship term. It implies intimacy. Let's read it. One, two, three. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Did you hear what Jesus said? Here it is. Here's what following me is all about. It's a relationship. Now, on your listening guide, we've identified this verse as the memory verse for the week. And you're saying, what in the world is he talking about? Yeah, every week during this seven weeks, we're going to give you a verse of Scripture that we want you to try to memorize. Not so you can just recite it, but we want you to memorize it so you can meditate, so you can take it and at work and at school and on the ball field and in the car. You can be thinking on the truths of these verse, verses and allowing them to sink down deep into your heart. This is eternal life. Jesus said, here it is. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Now, there is some forms of, quote, Christianity that are nothing more than a religion. But real biblical New Testament Christianity is not a religion. 
It's a relationship. You see, a religion is when man creates a system to somehow earn a right standing before God. Religion says, and you can call the religion whatever you want to call it, all kind of Vance Havner says isms that ought to be wasms. You, you can call it whatever you want to call it. But all religion, you boil it down and it's the same thing. You do this, 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 this. You don't do this, 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 this. And you hope for the best in the end, right? That's what religion says. Religion says do your best. Try your hardest. Work as much as you can work. Dot every I. Cross every T. Accept every creed. And then when you stand before God, you just pray that you did enough to measure up and God lets you in. Christianity says just the opposite. Christianity slaps you in the face right out of the gate and says, hey... There's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. It doesn't matter how many days you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how much money you give. There's nothing I can do to change the fact that I've sinned against God. And because of my sin, I'm separated from God. But Christianity says God did for me what I could not do left to myself. Jesus came, took all of my sin on himself, died on a cross, rose again from the dead. And now by his grace, Jesus offers me freely that which I could never earn an intimate love relationship with God. That's the essence of Christianity. And listen, everything in my life, just like the life of Jesus, everything in my life is now to be lived out of the overflow of intimate fellowship with God. Henry Blackaby said it this way, a love relationship with God is more important than any other single factor in your life life. I travel and speak at conferences and at churches across the country. Last week I was traveling, I was flying to the state of Alabama to speak at a conference there. And inevitably, you know, when you get on an airplane, if you're sitting by somebody you don't know, conversation begins and it usually starts with, so where are you from? Well, that happened this week. It happens all the time. Guy says, so where are you from? Las Vegas. Now you got their attention already when you say Las Vegas, right? And, and, and the, the question that always inevitably follows that question is, so what do you do there in Las Vegas? And it's like they can't wait for the juice. I mean, they're just, they're expecting me to say, a, oh, well, I'm a prostitute or I'm a mafia member or I'm, you know, they're expecting me to say something like that. And they're just like, they can't wait to hear what. And so my response is always the same. You'll never guess in a million years what I do in Las Vegas. <laughs> and I just wait. I say, go ahead, guess. I haven't had anybody yet guess what I do in Las Vegas. And after they've somewhat exhausted themselves with guessing, I, I, I let them in on the secret and say, well, I, I pastor a church. And they're like, in Las Vegas? I say, yeah, I got a lot of job security where I live with what I do for a living. Well, then the next question that always follows is, so what religion are you? And I say, oh, I'm not religious at all. You see, now I got them. And they open the door. It's their fault, right? They started this conversation. They say, you're not, how can you be a pastor and not be religious? I tell them, well, I don't believe in religion at all. Matter of fact, I believe religion sends more people to hell than anything else. You see, religion is the enemy's counterfeit. It's a cheap counterfeit for what God's really invited us into. The enemy would love for us to fill churches and do some do's and don't some don'ts and hope for the best in the end because he knows God offers us something greater than that. Listen, God didn't offer you a system. He offered you a savior. He's invited us into a love relationship with himself. 
Let, let me illustrate it this way. What, what is marriage? Is marriage two people buying a house together? Is marriage two people sitting down and eating meals around a table together? Is marriage simply having children with somebody else? Is, is marriage opening a joint bank account together? Is marriage planning your retirement together? No, none of those things are marriage, right? Marriage is a love relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And all those other activities only make sense in the context of the relationship, right? And to be totally honest with you, those other things, without the relationship, not only don't make sense, they'd be kind of weird. I mean, think about it. You don't just walk up to somebody at the mall and say, hey, let's open a joint bank account together. When you leave today, you're not just going to randomly select a house. At least I hope not. You're not going to randomly select some house in a neighborhood and walk in the front door, sit down at the table, grab a fork, say, what's for lunch? You see, the activities only have meaning and significance in the context of the love relationship. Think about it this way. What is Christianity? What, reading your Bible, praying, going to church, giving some money, sharing your faith, doing the good things, not doing the bad things. No. Christianity is a love relationship with God. And the activities only have meaning and significance in the context of the relationship. That's why this morning, all over America, there are millions of people. And you may be one of them sitting here today. You've walked in these doors thinking that somehow by sitting in that seat, you are earning favor with God. That you're cleaning up from this past week's activities. And you're getting a do-over today to try to show God you love Him and you want to live for Him. And there are people filling churches all over our country and all over our city today. Today, and they're sitting there and here's what they're thinking what in the world am I doing here why do I come week after week why do I give my money why, why, why do I read this book I don't understand anything it says you see the activities only have significance and value in the context of the love relationship I don't have to read my Bible because that's what I have to do to make sure God's happy with me, I get to read my Bible to spend time with the author of the book who wrote it so that I can grow to know him more and he can change me from the inside out. Now, with every one of these relationships, we're going to give you a key word that goes with one of these three icons behind me to help us remember this circle or this relationship. The first word I want to give you with this relationship is the word abide. Our relationship with God can be summed up in the word abide. You know what we have so complicated? Jesus summarized with one illustration out of a garden. We've made this thing of following Jesus so complex and so difficult. Jesus walked out in the garden, picked up a branch, and summarize the whole thing. Let me show it to you. John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine. Now, who's the I there? Jesus. Say it out loud. Jesus. I am the vine. You are the what? Who's the vine? Who's the branches? Us. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Simplicity. Simplicity. He summed up the whole thing of following Jesus with one little word about it. Let me ask you a question. What good is the branch without the vine? No good at all, right? I mean, you break the branch off of the vine, the branch is useless by itself. The branch can't do anything by itself. You know what the only thing the branch is good for? Holding on to the vine. And only in holding on to the vine does the branch produce fruit. What is fruit? Is fruit the branch out there working real hard to get something done? No. Let me tell you what fruit is. Fruit is simply the life of the vine being pressed out through the branch. Who's the vine? Jesus. Who's the branch? Fruit, living the life of Christ, is simply His very life being pressed out through us as we do one thing. Hang on to the vine. As we abide in Him, moment by moment, day by day. So here's the first question. Are you abiding? Is Christianity what you do on Sunday? Or is Christianity the very center? Is your love relationship with God the center of everything else in your life? Listen to me. Your identity is not in what you do. Your identity is in who you are in Christ Jesus. There's freedom in that if you'd get it. Hey, your identity is not in your job or your career. You know why you get so upset and so, so frustrated when you lose your job? Because your identity is in your job. Listen, you're not, your identity is not in your job. Your identity is in the person of Jesus Christ. Your job's just a platform He's given you to manifest His life to others. That's all it is. And if He chooses to change the, the resource from which you get your provision, the source, which is Him, then that's His business and not yours to worry about. We just abide in Him. That's all we got to focus on. That's it. Are you abiding in Him? The, the second relationship. Following Jesus is all about a relationship with one another. With one another. Genesis records for us the creation of the world. And Genesis 1, the Bible says God made light and said it was good. God made the sun and the moon, the stars, and said it was good. God made the birds and the fish and said it was good. God made the plants and the animals and the land and said it was good. And then God made man. Listen to what he said. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Then in chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is, what are the next two words? Not good. What does that mean? Well, it wasn't that there was some imperfection in the humanity that he created. What he's saying here is it's not good for man to be, what? Alone. You see, God created us for a love relationship with Himself, but it was never His design for that relationship to be lived out in isolation from other people. God made us to live out our relationship with Him in fellowship with other people. I've heard people say, well, my relationship with God's personal. It's between me and Him. And there's a degree of truth in that. It is a personal relationship. But, <clears throat> but that personal relationship was never intended to remain private. It's a relationship that He's given us to be lived out in the context of community. Why is church important? Well, i got to come to church to be a good Christian. 
I got to come to church to get that checked off on my box in heaven so when I stand before the Lord, he can give me my attendance awards for being at church, right? No. Did you listen to the whole first point? We don't come to church because we have... Let me tell you what church is. Church is the platform that God in His sovereignty established to be a place of connection and community so that brothers and sisters in Christ can come together and enjoy fellowship with one another. And you and I are made for relationship with God and designed to live that relationship out in fellowship with other people. I don't have to come to church. I get to come to church to enjoy fellowship because I have a relationship with God. Guess what? I now have a relationship with you. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we were designed to live that out in fellowship with each other. It's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. We won't take time to read it, but in the book of Acts, all these people began to give their lives to Christ, and the Bible says they began to live out their relationship with God in fellowship with others. It says they would, first of all, gather in a large group. It said they would gather in the temple courts, and the apostles would teach the word. And they would take the word of God and they would worship there in the temple courts in these large group gatherings. Why do we gather here every weekend? We gather here to teach the word of God so that the word of God can sink down into our hearts and so that we can fulfill our biblical responsibility of coming together in corporate worship and exalting and praising the name of Jesus Christ together. We come to be filled and to be fed the word of God but in the New Testament they not only gathered in the temple courts the Bible says they also continued to gather house to house they would meet in smaller group gatherings together it's the same thing Jesus did there were times when Jesus was teaching large groups of people and there were times when Jesus would pull aside just those 12 and he would take the truth that was given in the large group and in the small group Jesus would make application and he would take those truths. It was easy for them to hear it in the large group, but in the small group they had to look Jesus in the eyes and answer questions about what he'd been teaching. And sometimes he put them on the spot and they answered wrong. And he would correct them and he would teach them. At Hope, why do we do a weekend worship service and then encourage people to get in small groups? Is that just a program in our church? No. We believe it's literally living out the life of Jesus. It's the model that he established for us to have large group gatherings where we teach and we worship and smaller groups where we look in each other's eyes and we do life together and we take the truth and we apply it and we encourage and we serve one another and we meet needs and we pray for each other and we hold each other accountable. The word that I want to give you that's the key word for this principle is the word connect. Our relationship with one another is a relationship described in this word connect. We're to connect with others. If your Christianity is simply you living out your faith and all you do is come through a service maybe once a week and you're living in isolation from fellowship with others, I have two biblical words for you. Not good. It's not good. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, Woe to the one who, when he falls, there's not another to lift him up. He says, Two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labor. Jesus described it this way in the Gospel of John. I, I think it's interesting. Jesus takes the first 11 verses of John 15 and he gives us this illustration of the vine and the branches. And then in verse 12, 
he begins to give us some examples of what it looks like when we're abiding in him. Verse 12, I think the placement of this verse is very important to understanding its meaning. Verse 12 says, this is my commandment. That you love one another. Now, if he'd stopped right there, it's already a heavy statement. But what he closed it with makes it real heavy. Just as I have loved you. He says the first defining mark that you and I are abiding in him and living out of the overflow of intimacy with God is we have a fellowship, love relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And hear this. Come into a Sunday morning service and giving somebody a casual greeting and a hello, how you doing, is not living out this principle. Just as I have loved you. You've got to be involved in the lives of others to live this out. Now hear me. I'm not saying get involved in our program of small groups. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. The life of Jesus is a love relationship with the Father that spills into fellowship with other disciples. And if I'm going to be a faithful follower of Christ, guess what my life's going to look like? exactly that and if I'm not living that out if I'm laying that paradigm down on my life and something's missing I'm, I'm, I'm aiming at the wrong target you may be telling yourself oh I'm a faithful follower of Jesus but if you're not living these things out you got the Bible you got to deal with third relationship following Jesus is about a relationship with the world Jesus not only had a love relationship with the Father that spilled into intimacy with His disciples, but it overflowed into relationships with people that didn't know God at all. Here's how He said it in, John, in John's Gospel, the 17th chapter, the 18th verse. As you... He's talking about the Father. As you, Father, sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And can I let you in on a secret? You are them. You hear what Jesus just said? The Father sent me into the world on mission. Now I, I'm sending you. Here's what I'm saying. Evangelism, sharing Christ with others, and missions. You, you know what we tend to think that is? We tend to think that's like the Navy SEALs of the church, right? That, that, that's reserved for the Marine Corps of the church. I mean, you've got to be a real super kind of Christian to do that stuff. Here's what I'm saying to you. That's not a program for the elite. That's just the life of Jesus. If that's not a part of my life, that's not a program I hadn't attained to yet. That's an area of the target that I'm missing. Are you aiming at the wrong thing? 
You see, Jesus came into this world on mission from God to reconcile the world to God. Man was separated from God because of sin, and Jesus came to bring reconciliation. And just so you know, I'm not reading too much into what he said in John. Listen to the way Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at it on the screen. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, this is what he says next. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, what? Ambassadors for Christ. Now listen to what he says next. As though God were making his appeal through us. He doesn't say we will be ambassadors. He doesn't even say, do you want to be? You see, missions and evangelism, local and global, that's not what we have to sign people up for. It's not a program you can opt into or out of. It's simply a part of the life of Christ being manifest in your life. Here's what I'm saying. If I've got a sharing the gospel or a missions deficiency in my life, that's a love relationship with Jesus problem in my life. That's not just a program I hadn't learned yet. It's an intimacy with God issue. Because when I'm living out of intimacy with the Father, the very life of Christ begins to be manifest in my life. And let me tell you what it looks like. Intimacy with God, fellowship with disciples, and love and compassion and taking the gospel to people that don't know Him at all. That is my identity. Here's the, the word, the key word for this particular one. It's the word share. Share. We're to share in God's mission. Uh, Alan Hirsch (coughs) is a friend that I've gotten to know a little bit, and he writes some very intriguing and and, uh, perplexing things about the church. He, He really makes you think. And Alan Hirsch said this, Mission is who God is. Therefore, mission defines us. We're to share in the mission. Don't don't miss this. The Bible teaches us in Revelation that one day around the throne of Jesus, there will be this gathering called the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about that in week seven of this series. There'll be this gathering called the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that it's going to be people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation all gathered around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping Him, praising Him, exalting Him. And it's going to be, it's kind of the kickoff for eternity in heaven, this grand celebration. Here's what I'm saying to you today. Our lives are to be lived on mission in light of that moment. I'm not living to have a great career. I'm not living to have a comfortable retirement. I'm living for the moment 
around the throne of Jesus when every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation will worship and exalt and praise the name of God. And as a faithful follower of Jesus, not an elite Christian, just a faithful follower of Jesus, that's what it looks like. Now, I want to close with one last verse. All three of these relationships are interdependent. In John chapter 13, listen to what Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Connect. Even as I have loved you, abide. You also love one another. By this, all men will know share that you're my disciples. You hear what he's saying there? It's out of our overflow of love relationship with him that God gives us the kind of love that we can have for each other and then those two relationships become the greatest platform we have to authenticate the gospel to this world. Two weeks ago we had a lady visit our church for the first time from out of state. She and her husband had watched a series online that I had been a part of for another church out of California And they were here just visiting. And after the service, she came running over to me with big tears in her eyes. And here's what she said. She said, I I, I always wanted to be in a church like this. I said, what do you mean? She said, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And here's what she was saying. She walked into a fellowship. And she understood that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You see, we're all in the same family. And it's our relationship with God that transcends our racial background, our socioeconomic background, our educational background. All of those things become a wash in light of the grace of Jesus Christ. And Jesus now gives us a love for each other. And you know what a church like this is? It's a testimony to the world that Jesus can do what politics and politicians can't do. Jesus can change lives and create unity and community through the power of the gospel that can only be seen in light of what He's done. You see, it's our love relationship with Him that gives us our love for each other, that gives us the platform of credibility to speak with authority in a culture and say Jesus can change lives. Abide, connect, share. Am I abiding in Him daily? Am I connecting with others in fellowship? Am I sharing in the mission locally and globally? Listen, that's the paradigm. That's the life of Jesus. Lay that down on your life. And let the Holy Spirit of God 